0: Well, it's great to see you this morning. Looking forward to a wonderful time together in God's word. Open, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And if you have been attentive over the last few months, as we've walked through the Psalms, uh, covering a bunch of them up until 50, you might have noticed that I skipped 32, 33, and 34, and that's because I wanted to do those at Christmas. So, Lord willing, next week we'll begin in 32. Those are really just joyful Psalms of praise, and I look forward to walking those, uh, through those with you uh, during the Christmas season. And I do want to say as well that if you're visiting with us today, would you please take some time and give us some information about yourself? This is really important. We would love to be able to know that you are here and encourage you in any way. Our membership class is next Sunday night for those of you who are visiting and want to be there. And then please tell us how we can pray for you. We love to be able to pray for you by name specifically. And you can put those in the baskets uh, in the back. Our mission at Prince is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. Meaning this, it is our goal for every person to live a Jesus consumed life. Where Jesus is the first thing you think about when you wake up, he's the last thing you think about when you go to bed. That every decision, every thought throughout the day is Jesus. That is the ultimate goal. And we want to lead people who don't know Jesus to trust him for the first time and to make a decision by faith to follow him, to recognize that there is no amount of good works they can ever do to make themselves right with God. They must receive what has already been done by Christ on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, and receiving that as forgiveness for our sins, choosing then to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. But that is the first of a 1,000 decisions to trust and follow Jesus. So our desire for every member, every believer, is to keep doing that. Wake up tomorrow morning, trust and follow Jesus all throughout the day. And the way in which we lead people in that way is what we call our discipleship pathway. We want to equip people, meaning give you practical tools to know how to live an upward life of worship, an inward life in community, and an outward life on mission. The reason we say that is because if you want to be a growing disciple, if you want to trust and follow Jesus, there are three areas of your life that go together and cannot be neglected. Your upward life of worship, your personal time with the Lord Jesus Christ, your knowledge of him, your awareness of him, your upward worship. Your life with brothers and sisters in Christ, in community, in a church, and then your concern with those who don't know Christ. Those are the three primary areas of your Christian life. And the first one of those is an upward life of worship. What we say is that worship is the fuel of discipleship. It is the foundation of discipleship. It is the fuel of discipleship. Everything begins with worship. Meaning everything begins in your life of following Jesus with your own personal knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is the fuel and the foundation of discipleship discipleship. I love how A.W. Tozer says it. He says this. He says, one of the greatest tragedies that we find, even in this most enlightened of all ages, is the utter failure of millions and men and women to ever discover why they were born. And the simple yet profound answer is provided us by the Westminster Catechism and is based upon the revelation and wisdom of the word of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To worship and glorify God, that is the chief end of any man or woman. In other words, you exist to worship. God has created you to only be able to function at your fullest and experience life at his fullest when you are walking in a relationship of knowing and responding to the Lord. That's what worship is, making Christ the center of your life. And that's what Psalm fifty is all about. Psalm 50 is not as much a psalm of worship as it is a psalm about worship. It's a little bit surprising to us when we come to it if we've been reading the other psalms because most of the psalms are in and of themselves a worshipful response. But Psalm 50 feels more prophetic to us because in Psalm 50, the scene is of a courtroom. And God is both the judge according to verse four and five and he is the chief witness according to verse seven. The defendants on the other side are the people of God. It tells us in verse six that he is speaking and verse five to those who are his people, his covenant people. And God is bringing accusations against his people in regards to their worship. He actually brings two indictments against them. God says, as the judge, the holy one, the sovereign one, who sees all that you're doing, I see behind your acts of worship and I see what is really in your heart. And as the great judge, with love and holiness and judgment, he brings indictments against us for our worship. Now, it is easy for us in a text like this to think, well, yes, those people had a lot of problems, But the reality is, is the more that I've studied this text, the more I've come to realize that as the people of God, we do stand this morning before the judge who loves us and wants what's best for us, who wants us to live a life of worship that glorifies him and that allows us to enjoy him forever. And God the judge is questioning us even this morning in our worship. He's going to be asking you from Psalm 50, why are you here this morning? Why did you get up and come to church? Why'd you sing? Why'd you serve? Why'd you give an offering? Because he's indicting us for false worship. Listen to what he says in Psalm 50. If you're there and looking along, say amen. He says this. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, a symbol for God's presence, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, and he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God. Your God, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50 is really divided up into three sections. The first, in verses 1 through 6, is the God we worship. In verses 7 through 22, it is the worship that we often give to God... And then, in the final verse, it is the worship that God desires. Because we do see a distinction, and hopefully you noticed it as we read it. Here is the God that we worship. Here is the worship they were giving. But twice it says, there is another kind of worship that I want. He says two times, there is a worship that glorifies me. And he says to his people, but that's not the worship you're giving me. The worship that glorifies me is a worship, as we're going to see, that flows out of a heart of gratitude dependence, and holiness. He said, these three things are missing from your worship. There is no gratitude, there is no dependence, there is no holiness, so all of your sacrifices mean nothing to me. But let's look first of all, at those first six verses on the God we worship. Those first six verses are there to paint a picture for us of the Lord Jesus Christ because worship always begins with a vision of God. The way we define worship is worship is responding with all that we are our mind our will and our emotions everything to the revelation of God. I preached 5 weeks on Wednesday night earlier this fall on that if you want to know more about life of worship but it is responding with all that we are to the revelation of God meaning this there is no worship without revelation that God must make himself known first in order for us to worship. Worship always begins with us seeing God. So if we want a fresh heart of worship, if we want new affections, desires, longing for God, it always begins with a vision for God. And the reason Psalm 50, a psalm about worship, is giving us a vision of God is because that's how worship always starts. Think about this. If we exist to worship, and worship begins with knowing God and having a revelation from God, from his word, then the most important thing we do every day is get to know God in his word. And nothing takes the place of that ever. This is the reason we talk to you often about discipleship groups. It's the reason these little cards are available out there to invite you to say, listen, we need you to be in a community group. That's where you're gonna get pastoral care and shepherding. We then need you to step in to the next level which is a discipleship group where you're gonna read the Bible together, keep each other accountable, particularly in your Bible reading, men's groups and women's groups, because we know this, you will never grow to trust and follow Jesus more if it's not beginning with personal time with the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. I mean, that, that's the beginning. That's it right there. Because worship always begins with a revelation of God. It also reminds us that we are at our very core receivers. We are those who need God to reveal himself to us. And I love one little word in the first verse of chapter 50 where it says this God the Lord, listen to this, speaks. What an unbelievable word. God has spoken. God wants to be known. He wants you to know him. This book right here is God speaking to us. That is evidence that God wants you to know him. God speaks. Look at the way that God is described here as he's. Uh, revealing himself in verse one. He is the mighty one, God, the Lord. Three different names of God to describe himself. God is the word, is the word El, which means he is the almighty, the omnipotent, the ruler. That's, sorry, mighty one there at the very beginning. And then God is Elohim, meaning I am the one true God. There is no other God beside me. And then he says, Lord, Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. Meaning he covers all the bases. He says, I am the sovereign king and ruler over all things. I am the only God. There is no other God but me. And I am also the covenant-keeping God, meaning this. I am the God that wants to be known. I am the God that is inviting you into a relationship. I am the God who is personal, who loves you, and longs for you, and created you, and desires you. He says, I am the one that is speaking. And what it says is, he summons the earth. He's inviting all of the earth to come and hear what he is about to say. From the rising of the sun to the setting, that's not about time as much as it is about space. Meaning as far as the east is from the west, from the place the sun rises to the place the sun sets, I'm inviting all of you to come in hear, Out of Zion, out of his presence, he's speaking. Now, there's a beautiful little phrase there where it says his presence is the perfection of beauty. There is no blemishes in his presence. There is nothing wrong in his presence. His presence is the perfection of beauty. And then it describes it. It says, out of his perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Look at this. God comes and he does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. I tell you this all the time. The Psalms invite us to think and to imagine. And the picture we get of our Lord here is a Lord that is perfect in his beauty. He is shining forth in the magnificent of his glory. He literally radiates with glory. And then it says that around him is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest, tempest, meaning that there is this wind that howls around him, that he really is a fire, This is a picture of a holy and a righteous and a just God who is making himself known, but he is not trite, he is not casual. This is the holy God. God wants to be known that way. And it says there, he calls to the heavens above and that he may judge his people. And he gathers his faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And he declares his righteousness for God is the judge. But before God pronounces his indictment against his people, and before he exposes us, the first thing he wants us to see is who he really is. Because listen, if you have a casual view of God, you have a casual view of his indictments. If you think little of God, you'll think little of his indictments. But if you start this by seeing God as a righteous, holy judge, with the mighty tempest around him, and the fire in his presence, and shining brightly with beautiful glory, then you will have the response that Moses did when God, when God revealed himself. You will fall to your knees and you will see him as holy. You will have the response that Isaiah had when he saw this vision. And you will say, woe is me. I am a person of unclean lips. I want to make sure we remember that what we get here in Isaiah, I mean in Psalm 50, is not an outdated picture of the Lord. Because the picture that we get of the Lord in Psalm 50 is the exact picture we get of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19. Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. He will never be that again. He is no longer a crucified man hanging on a cross. He is not even any longer someone buried in the tomb or risen from the grave. Right now, an updated picture of Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling above all things. And the next time we see him, we will see him like, like Psalm 50, one through six. We will see him coming, shining in magnificent glory with flame in his eyes, with a diadem that is shining forth on his head. He will come with a sword in his hand to judge the nations. The next time you see Jesus, you will see him like this. This is not an outdated picture of Jesus. It's an updated picture of Jesus. This is the one who is speaking. So when he speaks, we stand, we stop, we fear And we give him our full attention. And then as we see him that way in verses seven through 22, he makes two indictments against the people of God in the worship that we often give. He says, here's the worship that we often give. Two indictments against two groups of people. Both people are his. We know that because in verse five, he gathers those who have made a covenant by sacrifice. And in verse 16 on the second indictment, he calls them wicked, but they're still his people because he's told us twice that they are, and then he says there are those who have taken his covenant on his lips. Today, we see ourselves as his people standing before a holy God, seeing if any of these indictments are against us. So here are the two indictments. I encourage you to write them down. The first one is this. The Lord, the righteous judge, says your worship is just a formality. Indictment number one. What I bring against you is your worship is just a formality? This is verses seven through 15. He says this, "Hear my people and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God and your God." Look at verse eight. "Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me." This is an important verse, because it reminds us that these are faithful people, faithful in duty. They're coming to church. They're giving an offering. And they're not just coming sometimes. It says your offerings are continually before me. You are a people who are doing the right things. You're serving. You're giving. And he says I'm not rebuking you for that. But this reminds me. and I was thinking about this as we were singing this morning. This reminds me that it is possible. Like these people. To be faithful to church. To be faithful to give. To be faithful to serve. And yet at the same time. Our actions not to be pleasing to the Lord. Do you know that that's possible? You know that you don't get just points for being here. That God is looking beyond your attendance and he's saying, I see all the things you continually do, but there's something wrong with them. He says in verse nine, I'm not gonna accept them. I don't accept the bull that comes from your house or the goat that comes from your fold. He said, I'm tired of your offerings. All of their serving, all of their attending doesn't mean anything. And the reason is this. Their worship didn't mean anything to God because their worship didn't mean anything to them. Their worship didn't mean anything to God because their worship didn't mean anything to them. They had come to a place in which their worship was just a formality, it was mechanical, it was active, but it was thoughtless, it had become a ritual. Their attending had become a routine, their giving had become a habit, their serving had become an obligation, and all of a sudden they were doing all the right things, but there was no heart. There was no joy, there was no desire, there was no affection, there was no love, there was no gratitude, there was no awareness of the kingdom of God and who Christ is. The Lord says, here's your problem. Your problem is, you think I need you. You say, well, I don't think the Lord needs me. Well, you do, because you give out of an obligation that, well, the Lord needs my money. You attend as if the Lord needs your attendance. You serve as if the Lord needs your serving. say, well, how do you know that's what the Lord says? Because what he says against them is this, starting in verse nine. He says, I'm not gonna accept a bull from your house or goat from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on the a and hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Look at what he says. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world and all its fullness are mine. In other words, the Lord is not hungry. He doesn't need anything, but if he did need something, he's not going to tell you because everything you have, he gave to you. There is nothing that he does not have. He does not need you. He does not need your sacrifices. He's not hungry. He doesn't need the bull that you sacrifice. He doesn't need the money that you give in the offering. He's saying, I don't need those things. He's saying, what has happened to you is you've begun to serve me out of a sense of duty or obligation or a sense that I need help from you. And his answer is this in verses 10 through 13, I I don't need you. You've missed the point of worship. It's just become a formality. Where is the heart? Where is the love and gratitude for me? I don't need your obligation or your duty or your sense of responsibility. And I'm telling you, this is a temptation for all of us, but mostly for the most faithful. Not those on the outskirts, we'll get to them next, but the most faithful, those who don't miss church and they pride themselves in it, those who give and those who serve, it is very easy for those actions to just become what we do and to lose the heart and love and affection behind them. And we would maybe never articulate it this way, but we get into this sense that the church needs me and the Lord needs me and everything we're doing comes out of that idea. And the Lord says, no, 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 you've gotten it wrong your worship is a formality and I don't need anything from you. The second indictment he brings is against another group of people. He says, not only is your worship a formality, but your worship is filled with hypocrisy. That's verses 16 through 21. He turns his attention to another group. He says, those of you who are faithful, here's what I'm saying to you. I don't need you. And so your routine worship is not pleasing to me, even though you're giving a lot. And then he turns his attention to another group. He says in verse 16, but the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statues or take my covenant on your lips? This is still his people, verse five and six, make that clear. But it's a group of people who are also faithful. They say the right things. They know the right words. They're still attending and giving. But there's something behind the scenes that no one else sees but God. There is hypocrisy in their worship. Look at what it says in verse 17. Verse 17 for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Listen to me carefully. What he's saying right there about these people is they come to church, listen carefully, they come to church, they hear a word from God, they get convicted about something and they just put it behind them. Or they open the Bible, they get convicted about something and they put it behind them. They don't want the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, the rebuke of the Lord. And so they'll, they'll feel it, That's how you know you're the people of God. God convicts you of something, but they disregard that conviction. And he says, This, you see a thief and you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. Meaning, this, they've become so hardened that sin doesn't bother them anymore. They're not bothered by their own sin. They've been living with the same sin for years and it doesn't bother them. And then they're keeping company with others and not rebuking their sin or confronting their sin because sin just doesn't bother them anymore. It says that not only do they keep his words on their lips, verse 16, but they also give their mouth free reign to evil and your tongue frames deceit you sit and speak against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. So with the same mouth, as James tells us, you speak blessing and that same mouth, you speak curses. These things that you have done and I have been silent, the Lord says, but I'm not gonna be silent anymore. You see, here's the issue. The first group of people thought that the Lord needed them. The second group of people thought that the Lord was like them. Look at this phrase. You thought that I was one like yourself. That is an amazing phrase. These things you have done and I've been silent. You have walked in sin. You have not confessed your sin. You're, you're playing the part. You're acting. Everybody thinks you're good, but there's something behind the scenes. And he says this, you thought I was like you. The first group thought the Lord needed them. The next group thought the Lord was like them. Meaning, you treat me like I'm one of the guys. You don't treat me like I revealed myself in verses one through six. You don't treat me like a holy and a righteous judge in the splendor of his beauty, in a glory that shines so bright that we can barely look upon it. You don't see me in my holiness. You don't see me in my righteousness. You treat me in a trite manner. My presence doesn't have any effect upon you anymore. They've gotten casual with their view of God. And when you get casual with your view of God, you get casual with sin. You get casual with church. You get casual with holiness. So they begin to walk in unrighteousness, and in hypocrisy because they have failed to see God as he really, as you thought I was like you. Let me tell you something. This has been really heavy on my heart. I had an opportunity to speak to a bunch of high school guys on Friday and what I talked to them about was really just fresh up on my heart, which is this. It just seems that there is almost no fear of God left. You know, I'll tell you, at one of the most difficult moments in my life, Jesus's words in Matthew 11, where he says, come to me if you're weak and heavy laden and I'll give you rest and take my yoke upon me because, you, because I'm, I'm gentle of heart. Let's listen to me. The gentleness of Jesus saved my life. I needed the gentleness of Jesus and he is good and he is kind and he is loving and he is gracious. He is a friend to sinners. He is gentle. But there is another side of Jesus that we have forgotten. He is also terrifying. There's a terrifying side of Jesus for those who walk in their hypocrisy and do not stand in front of him with brokenness and contrition for their sin. And when he comes back in Revelation 19, there are those who have submitted to him, not been perfect in any way, but have constantly been broken before him and sought to be right. And there are those who have been rebellious against him, And the one who comes back in all of his glory with a sword in his hand riding on a white horse will come to bring judgment on those who have rebelled against him. There is also a terrifying part of Jesus Christ. I don't know where the fear of God went, but he's saying the problem is you thought that I was like you. And he said, I've stayed silent for a while, verse 21, but now I rebuke you because you're casual with God. I'm not like you. Now, there are two indictments, both very common, both convicting. One, your worship's a formality. The other, your worship is filled with hypocrisy. But both of them are rooted in the same problem. Look at what it says right there in verse 22. Here's the the root of both of these issues. Mark this then, you forget God. That's, That's the issue. They're thinking about church, they're thinking about their offering, they're thinking about their service, listen, but they're not thinking about God. You know that it's possible to show up at church and not think about God. You know it's possible to give and to serve and to not be thinking about God. They're taking God lightly and because of that, their worship is not a proper response to the Lord because there's just not a lot of thought of God. And it brings us to the question that we have to ask is how much are we really thinking about the Lord? How much is he on our mind? How much is he on our heart? I'm not not concerned that you're here this morning, but how much are you thinking about the Lord? They had forgotten God. They didn't forget church. They didn't forget serving. They didn't get for the offering. They just forgot God. And because they forgot God, some of them became formal and some of them became hypocrites. And with both of those indictments there, The Lord says this, well, here's the worship that I really desire. He answers both of those things in verses 23 and verses 14 and 15. He says, so what is the worship that you desire? Listen to this. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, that glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And I skipped verses 14 and 15 for a reason a minute ago because they're our answer. They say the same thing, verse 23 says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Both of those things show us that the worship that God desires is a worship that flows out of a heart of gratitude, dependence, and holiness. Twice, he says, if you wanna worship in a way that glorifies me, which also means it is a type of worship that is best for us, it must flow out of these three things, gratitude, dependence, and holiness. Think about this idea of the worship, the sacrifice that God wants is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why in the world would that be? Because by giving the Lord thanks, It shows him as the giver of all things. By giving God thanks and living in dependence upon the Lord, it is not saying with your worship, Lord, you need me. It is me saying, Lord, I need you. And when you're living in a way that you're dependent upon the Lord and you recognize that everything you have came for him and you're giving back thanksgiving to him, he gets the glory as the one who has done everything in your life. So it is not you living in such a way to give God what he needs. It is the constant recognition that, Lord, I have nothing unless you give it to me. I take what you have given to me and I give you thanks. That is a heart that glorifies him. So on one side, there are those who walk with a bit of arrogance as if the Lord needs their money and needs their time. Another attitude is, Lord, I need you and I don't have anything without you. And so I live in dependence upon you and I give you thanks for what you have done because worship is responding to what God has given to us with constant dependence and thanksgiving. I was thinking this morning about our missions offering. We've been promoting this recently. Our goal is $400,000 above and beyond regular tithe. Listen, do you think the Lord needs $400,000? I mean, do you think the Lord is is thinking to himself, there's this people group in Nepal that have never heard the name of Jesus, and I long for them to know it, but I need 400 bucks to make it happen. Jesus does not need $400,000. As a matter of fact, if he wanted to, he could simply send an angel to go and declare the gospel to them the entire unreached people group can be converted and they would probably get convicted for missions and come to America to share the gospel. That could happen. We need it. That could happen. God doesn't doesn't need your $400,000. So why in the world would we be asking you for $400,000? Listen is Maybe the offering is not because God needs it. Maybe it's because you need it. Maybe it's because I need it. Maybe the reason that Andrew and I need to give sacrificially to the offering is because God does not want us last week to be deceived by riches and he wants our hearts to be tethered to the mission of God. He wants us to be connected to what's happening in Nepal. Why? Because we got skin in the game and we're given money. Maybe God has provided these offerings as a means for you to make sure that your heart is committed to him. Maybe it's for your good. He does not need the money. Listen, I have an absolute conviction and I believe I can prove it to you from Scripture. I'm not going to do it now. That every believer should give 10% of their gross income to the local church. I believe that biblically. But even apart from that, every place I've ever been where I've talked about this, every place, Someone comes up to me and says, Pastor, how dare you say that we gotta give 10%? And by the way, I preach that that's a starting place because 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says that in the same way you grow in every area, you should grow in the grace of giving. I believe if you've been a believer for 10, 15 years and you're still giving 10%, you should grow in that and give more. Systematically increase your giving. So I go next level. And every time someone comes to me, Pastor, we're, we're under grace, not law. Don't bring that law to me. What I, what I want to say to them is this, 100% of everything you have, you got from God. Every, 100% of everything you have, and as easy as he gave it, he can take it away. You have earned nothing. Nothing. Everything came from the Lord, and you're arguing with me about the law for 10%? Like the heart should not be that. The heart of giving should be this. Lord, you don't need my money, but I'm so overwhelmed by how good you've been to me. And I want to experience the fullness of your blessing. I'm gonna graciously and generously give back and listen to what's amazing. If we even give so sacrificially that we then have to get on our knees and say, Lord, now I don't know how you're gonna provide. I'm dependent upon you. Then he provides and he gets more glory. This is for you. One of the ways I was convicted this week as a pastor is pastors are notoriously terrible at making you feel guilty. This is, a bad, this is a bad habit. So I said to you a couple of weeks ago that we can't move on into 2021 unless we have people to work. I mean, we, abs- like we need people to work. Because we're starting our Wednesday night programming back, our Sunday morning, particularly in our Next Generation Ministries. And what a pastor often does is subtly put guilt in your heart until you serve. Do you realize that's the opposite of Psalm 50? Psalm 50 is not guilt. As a matter of fact, it's taking all that away. It's saying, we don't serve out of guilt. We don't serve out of obligation. I shouldn't say you should serve because you're a member of the church. You should, but that's not what I should say. What I should say is this. Listen, the only reason I'm anything is because when I was a kid, people invested in me. When I was a teenager, people invested in me. And so the least that I can do is take two hours a week on a Wednesday night and invest in children and the next generation out of gratitude for the fact that I am only here as a testimony of those who have done the same for me. So so church, out of gratitude for the Lord, let's let's serve for the joy of the Lord. That's true worship. And it's a worship that is pleasing to him. And the last thing he says is this, is that the true worship flows out of a, a life of holiness. It is the one who, listens to this, orders his way rightly. He puts his way on the life, on the path of the Lord. He walks in holiness. And I love the last line, to those who live in dependence and gratitude and holiness, the Lord shows his Salvation. The Lord continues to pour out his grace and his goodness and his blessing on those who worship him this way. I keep thinking about these verses from Psalm 116. Listen to Psalm 116. It says this in verse 12. "What well, shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What do I give to the Lord? He's been so good to me. Here it is. I lift up my cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That's exactly what it says in those verses. Well, how do I, how do I respond to the Lord? Well, verse 14, I mean, 14 and 15 say this. We'll call upon the name of the Lord in trouble. That glorifies me. So my response to all God's given me is lift up my cup and say, Lord, I'm empty. I need more. <laughs> I need more. That glorifies God. I need more. God, I need more. I need more grace. I need more. I need more. Because that's Dependence. We receive from the Lord, we give him glory and the life of worship is this constant realization that I got nothing without the Lord so I receive from him, I give him thanks, I walk in holiness and he is pleased. The difficulty of this kind of worship is everything about it is counterintuitive. Because we're self-centered, we want our giving to be about us, our serving to be about us, we want the attention from this, when the reality is a true life of worship is not one that is centered on us, it is one that is centered on God. And all that Psalm 50 is trying to do is this. It's trying to get you to fix your gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In your worship and your giving and everything, just fix your gaze upon Jesus. To let you, him be the center of everything in your life and everything flow out of a response to him. Because when Jesus becomes the center, you do get a fresh vision of him. You're overwhelmed with his goodness. You're overwhelmed with your neediness. And you live in this constant awareness that you have to be a receiver. And when you are, God gets the glory as the great giver. I pray it'd be true of all of us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.